Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Beta and, and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Then Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer. Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been, brought, had been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab the son of Zariah was over the army, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder, and Zadok the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech the son of Abithiar were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jeho- Jehoadiah, was over the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your word um, that you've given to us. Um, we thank you for the truth that it contains. Lord, I pray that we would just um, have humble hearts, open minds as we come to your word. Um, that we would seek the truth that you have for us and not try to put our own um, spin on on what you have for us. Lord, I pray for Mark, um, that you would be with him. Lord, that it would be the Holy Spirit's words through Mark and not his own um, as he brings a message to us. I pray that we would all grow uh, closer to you this morning and learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. You guys know me well enough, right? I get so excited about passages like this because as, as they're reading Scripture every single week, I'm just smiling to myself because I could just feel the what? Every week I say that. I know, but I just I love 
the thing I love about God's word is we can read a chapter like this. There is a purpose for it. There is a reason for it. My hope is that you caught it as he was reading. Um, And the reason why I say I hope that you caught it, because my hope is that as we go through scripture like we do, we take a chapter at a time or a section of verses at a time, that there are certain things, certain, you could say rules if you want to say, not really rules, uh, there's certain things that you can do as you're reading scripture. And one of them is, if something is repeated, it's probably important, right? If something is repeated, it's probably important. And we get stuck on the, he made them lie down and kill them. He hamstrung the horses. Like, those are all good details, but we can miss good. Did I just say good? You guys know what I meant. Like, those are interesting details, but I was just saying, like, oh, yeah, what did he do and how did he do that? Makes it sound like I'm, I'm not even going to go there. It's, just gonna, it's a deep hole that I don't want to go under. But what we could do with passages like this and chapters like this is we can do something very similar to what we do with the story of David and Goliath. It was about a year ago that we wrestled with David and Goliath, and my very first phrase, does anybody remember the very first words that came out of my mouth, or one of the very first words? You are not David. Thank you. See, he is paying attention, guys. He is paying attention. You are not David. Now, the temptation with David and Goliath is to do that. Like, we can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Anything. Okay, both those passages, that's not what that means. Okay, yes, we can do anything through Christ who strengthens me means despite my sin, God can give me the power to defeat sin because he has already defeated sin. I am not David because David is the future anointed king. Anybody here an anointed king? You, no, you're not, you're not. David His life, David and Goliath, his life or his battle against Goliath is he is the anointed king. God empowers David to then defeat Goliath, who is the enemy of God's people. Who we are in that story of David and Goliath is who? Say it. Somebody somebody said it. Israel. And what was Israel doing at that moment? They were cowering. We are Israel who needs the anointed king to step up to fight our enemies for us. We are not David. Now you go, why in the world, (laughs) why would you say that? Like, we're not even looking at 1 Samuel. What does this have to do with that? Well, one of the joys, and I say that loosely, is as I read commentaries, I have to... You get sometimes, especially with difficult passages, you can get lots of different opinions. This commentary guy says this, and this one says this, and this one says that, and you have to kind of sift through it. And a majority of the commentaries that I read this week said, you are David. You are David. That we can be victorious over our sin just as David was victorious over the Philistines. Now, they're way smarter than me, and maybe I needed to read the entire commentary from beginning to end to get a better understanding of them, but that is wrong. And you say, how can you say that? Because I found 
other commentaries that agreed with me. Now you're like, oh, you're just listening to commentaries that agree with you. No, because it doesn't agree with what Scripture says. We are not David. We are not the anointed king. We are Israel. We are God's people as the church. And though a lot of David's qualities and actions can be examples to us as God's people, because, okay, be brave, trust in the Lord, uh, trust in God to fight your battles for you, that's all true. Don't, don't hear me diminish that. Okay, but we cannot do a one-to-one comparison and say, I am the anointed one of God, because we are not the anointed. There is one anointed, true anointed king, and his name is Jesus. It ain't Mark. It's Jesus. We are Israel. David's life as the anointed king, he is a type of Christ. His life is meant to point us, God's people, to the true anointed king, Jesus. So this isn't a knock on those commentaries because naturally I think we do that. Read ourselves into scripture. So if you hear something repeated, that's important. You also need to bring the context of the passage into play. And looking at this, he's the king, I am not. So we got we to hone our idea and go, okay, so if he's the king, in this passage, Psalm chapter 8, David is having victory over who? Israel's, Israel's enemies. He's receiving spoil and tribute from these battles. He's appointing officials in his government. Has anybody done that lately? No, because we're not king of Israel. We're not king of God's people. And seeing all these things, even when this passage, we can, we can lose the message, or the, what I would say is the important point, the important message of this passage. And it's actually found twice in this passage, in verse 16, uh, 6 and 14. And this is where I said, I hope you, I hope you caught it. I think I heard somebody say something over here. I'm not going to point. I don't know who it was, but congratulations, because I think what you meant by the hmm that I heard was that you have heard it, this, this phrase before, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Twice, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The Lord, not David, is the center of this passage. The Lord not Israel, is the center of this passage. In fact, that word victory in Hebrew can also mean preserve or save. So it it was the Lord who preserved David wherever he went. Any victory in battle, any spoil or any tribute, any competent appointee to government or a military position, They were done by God to preserve David, to give him victory, to save David, or more specifically, to preserve God's promise to make David a house and establish his throne forever. That's chapter 7. That's the context. In chapter 8, God is fulfilling what he promised to David in the previous chapters. I will make you a house and I will establish your throne forever. And so we're going to start by looking at what, what the Lord did to give David victory. And if David and his life is to point us to 
Christ to the Messiah, then we're going to end by looking at what God to give Jesus victory. David is the king who points us to Christ. The Lord is God who points us to himself. And Israel, in in in, in 2 Samuel, is the Lord's people who point us to the church who are God's people today. So we got all that covered. We need to keep that in mind as we, as we work through this. So the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So the Lord gave, gave victory to David on the battlefield. Israel is surrounded by enemies. You've got Philistines in the west, Syrians in the north, Edomites in the south, Moabites in the east. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And after David takes the throne, he begins the long and difficult process of fighting and defeating these, these enemies, each one in turn. So it wasn't like he showed up and within 20 minutes, the Philistines were defeated. I mean, there are long and hard battles. There's psalms that are written um, where David's about to lose the battle. Many are dead. He's down um, he's, he's down on himself. He said, like, Lord, you've got to give us this victory. This is not going well. And God brings victory out of defeat. So this was a, a long, hard process of defeating Israel's enemies one by one, sub- subjecting them or subjugating them underneath his rule. And three times we actually read that these enemies became David's servants and brought tribute. And so Israel, finally, they have a king. They're united under this king. All of their enemies are defeated and subjugated to David. And finally, Israel has peace. The Lord also gave David victory on the home front. So yes, he, he brought in a lot of tribute. That, that tribute, the bronze, the gold, the silver, all of that is actually given by God to help Solomon actually build the temple, which is interesting. Um, I'm not going to focus on that, but on the home front, he, it says that he reigned with justice and equity. Now our society today, these words, they have a little bit of baggage with them, Right? We hear justice and equity, and we immediately start to go in probably 10 different directions. And so we need to understand, though, not what does our society say with these words, or what we say these words are, or even what does Webster's Dictionary say these words are, but how does, how does the Bible speak of justice and equity? For David, to rule justly means that he was fair in his judgments. He was not swayed or bribed to judge in favor of one side over another, but he judged according to wisdom, which brings us then, and godly wisdom, which brings us then to equity. So if he judged justly, what does it mean that he judged and ruled with equity? Well, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, this is, this is what he says about the future Messiah. Spoiler alert. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, 
and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So that word righteousness is the exact same word as equity in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And it's the same phrase, justice and equity, or justice and righteousness. So for David to rule with equity is to speak of his ruling with righteousness. Well, what what does that mean? It means that he ruled over the people of Israel and over his enemies who are now subject to him with rightness and godliness. He did not rule out of selfish ambition. He didn't rule out of vain conceit. He didn't rule with himself as the head. David did as the Lord desired. He ruled with godliness, if you want to say a little bit more modern term. All of this was done by God. Every victory in battle, every just and righteous ruling was all brought about by God. The Lord's victory, victories through David were victories for Israel, the people of God. Because the victory over Israel's enemies and the victory of having a king who ruled with justice and righteousness, that's what brought peace to God's people. So, my hope is if you've been with us long enough, you know where this is going. If David's life is not primarily meant to point us inward toward us, I am David, and I can win the battle, but outward towards Jesus, then these victories should be evident in the life and the ministry of Christ. And amazingly, and really not shockingly, they are. They are. Not because I say they are, because that would be really convenient, but because of the evidence that's found in Scripture. Now, we're not going to go through the entire New Testament. You can read the Gospels, look at the life of Christ. You could see what he's saying, that multiple times throughout Christ's life, he is proclaimed to his face, you are the king. And that's not to say you are Caesar, it is to say you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah, you are the one, the branch of David that Jeremiah was talking about. You are the king who rules rightly and rules justly. So, God gives victory to Jesus wherever he went. So, throughout the history of Israel, The people of God were waiting to find that seed of the woman, which is spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. That seed, that individual who would one day restore the people of God to a right relationship with him. Because of the sin by Adam and Eve, now the separation between humanity and God has occurred. And God's people do not have a relationship with God. They, don't, they can't be around each other. They, they, God can't have sin in his presence. Something has to happen to that rift. It has to be healed. It has to be fixed. And this anticipation grows after Eve. And it's anticipated in Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel, and Saul, King Saul, and David, and even Solomon. And after his reign, David became like the focal point. He came like, it's probably a really bad word, but he's like the poster boy of, of the Messiah, 
Like, look at what David did. Look who David, remember what we were, what we were like as Israel, as Israel underneath David's reign and rule? One day, God promises that he's going to bring another David, but a better David. And man, what was better than David? I don't know. But he promised he's going to bring a better David. And he would be of David's lineage. He would conquer all of Israel's enemies. He would rule with justice and righteousness. And over 300 years after David's rule, Jeremiah spoke those words that I just quoted um, just a few minutes ago. And in fact, Jeremiah says the same words twice. And if it's repeated, it's probably important. So the first one was in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 33 is the next quote. Israel, a little bit of background. Israel's been taken into exile. They've been there for about 100 years. And then Judah in the south, because they were split after Solomon's reign, was just beginning their own exile because of the rebellion against God. Where's this Messiah? It's been 300 years since David, and look, now we're conquered by our enemies, and we're not even in the promised land anymore. But uh, Jeremiah, or God spoke through Jeremiah, and he revealed not hope is not lost. We've said this a number of times. God does not, God does not work in our timing. He works in his own timing, and his timing is perfect. Ours is not. And you think 300 years, whew, and then Jeremiah says this to God's people. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Reminds them the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. You're in exile, but there is hope. There is hope. One day, a descendant of David is going to is going to come to rule as king over God's people, just as David ruled. As I said before, even better than what David did. And the people, what words of encouragement? What words of hope in the midst of of suffering and pain and exile? God's people one day will one day find victory and peace. And then finally, 600 years later, 600 years later, nearly a thousand years after David ruled, the Messiah comes, and his name is Jesus, which ironically means the Lord saves. Now, where have we heard that before? And God gave David victory wherever he went. The Lord preserved David. The Lord saved David. Wherever he went, God fulfilled his promise to save his people. And now, a thousand years later, 900 years later, the Messiah shows up and his name is the Lord saves Through Christ, God gives victory to his people. But his people are no longer limited to ethnic Israel. Now people from all nations make up God's people. And today they're referred to as the church, the big C church. 
And instead of Philistines and Moabites and Edomites, the king, Jesus, fights the true enemies of God. The true enemies of the people of God, maybe I should say more specifically, which was revealed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And that is sin and death. It's not the Philistines that separate God's people from him. It's his people's sin. From the beginning in the garden, God was working in a way to bring victory to his people. Because Romans chapter 6, verse 23, very famous verse, says what? For the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve sinned. They no longer lived forever. They physically died, but in that moment, they spiritually died also. And it is the same for us today. We inherit that sinful nature. The separation between us and God is still there. Our sinful and our willing rebellion against God justly earns us the punishment of death. Justly, rightly. Not only physical death, but spiritual and eternal death. Our sin brings upon us the just and rightful wrath of God, the judgment of which is eternal torment away from the glorious and life-giving presence of God. That's the reality, and that is the bad news. But there's a reason the gospel is called the good news. Because the good news is that this is exactly why Jesus the true anointed king came to earth. He came to fix that problem by willingly dying upon the cross to pay for our sins, though he had no sin of his own. That's Hebrews 4, 15. He placed the wrath of God that was meant for us upon himself. He defeated the enemy of sin and removed its power over those who believe and trust in his victory. Instead of eternal death, we who believe now receive eternal life. Jesus said to the woman at the well, after a long conversation, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? If you believe in me, even though you die, you live. And whoever lives will never die. Like, what is he saying? Well, sin has corrupted creation, including you and me, to the point that physical death is inevitable. What do they say? The only thing guaranteed is taxes and death. We're all going to die. And I know that's not fun to hear, right? Especially younger people, you're like, I got a good 80 years, just forever. Some of us are closer to that 80 years or more, Lord willing, than others. But the reality is, is we will not live forever and there's no guarantee that we will even make it home alive today. Not to be a downer, that's just reality. We got to face reality. Death is inevitable because sin has corrupted creation. 
we will all one day breathe our last breath. But for those who believe in Christ, though we die physically, we will live eternally with God. Sin has been defeated and no longer rules over God's people. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in what He did to save you from the wrath of God for your sins, if we, if we trust in His victory, then we will find victory over sin. Not because we have won the battle, but because He already has. And so though we die, and we will die, we will also live forever with Him. And as Jeremiah once prophesied, the branch of David, Jesus, He's going to reign with justice and righteousness. Because justice must be met, must be met. Righteousness has to be upheld. God does not compromise on His holiness. He does not compromise on justice. He does not compromise on His righteousness. And the judgment for sinful rebellion has to be rendered. The punishment must be paid. So God's people, if you believe in Jesus, we trust in Christ's suffering and enduring the judgment rightly meant for me. We, he endured what we deserved. And I trust Christ was enough. And I believe that Christ was enough. But for those who put their trust in themselves, for those who reject the victory that was brought about by the cross, justice must still be met. So justice is either put upon Christ, the punishment, selling Christ, or it's upon us. So I'm going to change these pronouns a little bit on purpose. Because if you find yourself and you're in this place where you are rejecting Christ and you're putting it on you, I want you to take these words to heart and they're purposely very direct. God's wrath for your rebellion against Him must be satisfied. And if you will not trust in the work of Christ to pay that debt, then it will land on you. You will have to endure the full force of God's wrath for all eternity. Not for three days. Forever. Jesus Christ, He will be your judge and He will rule with justice and righteousness and he will rule in favor of God. Instead of eternal victory, you will find only eternal death. I don't say that to scare. Nobody can be frightened into heaven. Nobody can be. But if we're going to hear the truth of God's word and we talk about victory, we also need to understand why victory had to happen. And if no one will tell you the reality of the justice and righteousness of God, 
then I am compelled to tell you now. Hear these words. And these are words from, and I'm probably going to totally mispronounce this, Pastor Dabidi Anwabwile. Okay, you guys, some of you guys know who he is. I can't say his name for the life of me, okay? But great teacher, okay? So hear, hear, hear what he says, because I can't say it any better than this. He wrote an article, and this is how he concludes the article. He says, my friend, if you are not yet a Christian, believe on Jesus. Believe his word, which promises victory over death and gives eternal life. Believe he was crucified. Believe he died in your place to suffer your agony and curse. Believe he rose again three days later, later victory, victorious over death and Satan. Believe that he is coming again to bring his people into heaven with him. Believe that he loves you and the Father loves you and nothing shall separate you from their love. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved from sin and death, Satan and suffering to live a new life of righteousness and hope through faith in the Son of God. Repent from sin and believe and you will be saved. See, God gave victory to Christ over the church's enemies of sin and death and each time that we take communion, we are reminded of that victory and we give Christ, the righteous branch of David, our Savior, the glory and the honor and praise that he is due for what he did, for the victory that he brought to us. Because without him, we would not find life. In Romans 6.23, I quote it, for the wages of sin is death. There is more to that, right? And the second half of that verse is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Christ's death upon the cross defeated the curse of sin and death, giving victory to Christ for those who believe in him and trust him. And so this time, if you find yourself in that place as a child of God, take this time of reflection to worship and give him glory and praise and honor for the gift of life that he brought. But if you have not yet believed in Christ's victory, if you have yet to trust in Christ's work upon the cross, first and foremost, believe and be saved. Believe, trust, and be saved. Secondly, we ask that you refrain from joining us at the table because this table reminds us of Christ's victory and our salvation through his victory. And it's a reminder that we take very, very seriously that even the Bible warns not to take it lightly. So this is a time of reflection and a time of joy for God's people. But this is a reminder also to those who do not believe that you need Christ. You need life that is found only through Him. And so, when we're done here, well, when I'm done talking, you can start a line, grab a cup and the bread, come back to your seat, sit down, reflect, worship, 
praise, remember, as Christ says. And then we're going to remember his victory for us together as God's people, as a church, as a family, as the family of God, and give him the praise and worship and glory that he is due to his honor and his praise. Amen? All right, so when you're ready, go ahead and grab a cup, bread, and have a seat.